Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap with me, Andy, and Mike Donahue. Mike, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great, Andy. How are you? Never better. Um, Good. A little sleep deprived. Um, me too. Yeah. yeah you actually worked. Yeah. You were an actual, the- you were actual election judge. So, since we since they have you on the podcast, can you tell me what you did to actively steal votes for Joe Biden? I, uh, I, I, I was worried I was going to run out of uh, the Costco, the garbage bags. Yeah. Did you, um, uh, did you hand out Sharpies to the Trump voters so their votes wouldn't count? Yeah. We saw, we saw that. And it would, and I saw, I had a mail-in ballot and, uh, and I got nervous that I used a Sharpie at home and, you know, this was a few weeks ago. So I switched over, but I did learn yesterday and you could see it. If you look at the ballot, anyone that used a Sharpie is it, it, you know, you can put it on the other side, but it does not invalidate right. uh, the ballot. They are there to read them to be in the proper hole, as long as you get them in the hole. And so they made sure that the holes were not lined up on opposite sides um but yeah it was an interesting 16 hour day wasn't crazy where i was at i was at a small precinct uh it was actually in a it was actually in a clubhouse at a condominium Hmm. a lot of older people (laughs) uh so this particular precinct uh definitely you know uh, i could tell went went to donald but uh, it was not big nobody gave attitude everybody wore masks uh nobody electioneered i was prepared for all that because of all the hubbub so it was pretty straightforward forward uh but yeah long day and you know here we are were you a little disappointed you wanted to at least get to crack one head and then nobody, i know nobody would act i did up. i did have one incident oh, and okay. uh it, it wasn't along partisan lines i think it was uh, a, a, an older polish gentleman uh with his wife poor woman who I, I who i had to we talked about this afterwards amongst the other judges she probably absolutely dreads election day because uh kind of the old world old-fashioned husband uh basically wanted her vote and he had a little bit of better command and we kind of noticed a little bit of you know uh in, you know untoward behavior you're supposed to keep yourself in the polls so i walked over there and like the guy kind of caught my eye and I could tell he was, you know, they were muttering to each other in Polish and she was already done sitting in a chair next to him. And I saw them like hand the ballot. So obviously the guy is like trying to vote. Twice. I could have rung him up, <laughs> but you know, I'm not going to try to make a mountain out of him. Although I stood there and he got pissed and it was pretty funny. I mean, nothing was going to happen. I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm not looking for a confrontation, but I think I know my presence there at least in that situation was probably good. I was the only male judge out of the five, and I think they were happy just to have me stand there. And you know, yeah. I'm not going to engage the guy. And he look, he, could, he looks over his shoulder at me, and he's frustrated because I knew that he I, he was stymied. He's like, uh, "I've been coming here for 20 years, and yeah, whatever." It's my I voted, first time. I voted yeah. 40 times in 20 years. <laughs> <Wait a minute. laughs> Never mind what I said. At one point. He took the ballot back, from, and I didn't say anything. I'm right there, though. And then she must have made a mistake because he's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, he's like – so the poor woman – the poor woman's embarrassed. She's humiliated. Like, she was trying to say, it's okay, it's okay. And, you know, I'm not I'm not looking to, uh, you know, ignite the situation. I just want the guy to wrap up and get out. And he's muttering that, you know, uh, I, you know I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to file a complaint, you know, and – you got to let him vent because what we talked about afterwards, I mean, if I wanted to be a real hard ass about it, it was absolutely, 
not what he was doing. I, I could have reported him and made a deal out of it and validated it. I let, I let him finish, but that was the only drama uh, that I had. It was just sort of uh, standing between an old world Polish husband and his wife as he basically tried to bully her vote out of her. So I'm waiting to get a phone call from um, the Justice Department requesting me to testify against uh, the postmaster, Louis DeJoy. Oh, because is that right? Both me and my both uh, my wife and myself uh, requested mail-in ballots from the state of Illinois, and we did not get them. Ah, oh, so you we could track. We could track it, and they were sent on the first day, September twenty fourth, that they were allowed to mail them out, and it never came. Okay. So a week ago, I went to the election office and went up and said, "I didn't get it. Can I just vote in person?" And they said yes. Mm-hmm. And so they went into the little thing. And yep. basically canceled out my mail-in that, ballot. That, that was smart that you did that because, as I learned yesterday in being a judge, what that happened a lot. Sometimes they would bring in a spoiled ballot. Yep. They wanted, you know, so there's a whole process, which also the experience showed me how absolutely, utterly absurd uh, simpletons out there when they talk about stealing elections and how it, it's like I've seen it now. And I knew it anyway. I knew it as a voter. I knew yeah. That, that you would have to go so far out of your way and the reward is not even worth it compared to the risk and nobody really does it. And yeah, with the, those mail-ins, so if you didn't do that, if you just showed up at the polls, it was a little bit of a pain in the ass for you. If you didn't get it, you had to sign an affidavit and then you would get, we would still give you a non-provisional ballot, but um, uh, if we had evidence that they received it, they had to get a provisional. It's a whole type of thing. I learned all kinds of stuff yesterday. So uh, I didn't mean to... Uh, interrupt the conclusion of that story um no that was pretty much it so yeah. so but it was so it was smart that you went a week ahead so they could so when you went to the poll did yes, you well i knew i didn't want to go i didn't want to have to do that i didn't want to have to go on election day so you just voted early then when there's a line and be like uh i never got mine there was a line anyway uh, i had a line, i had to stand outside for like 15 minutes oh man you poor thing um i survived good for you Oh, yeah, election right. fraud is a fantasy cooked up by uh, people who've lost elections, or don't yeah. like the who or who don't like the results of the election, and then they like to cook up these grand conspiracies as to why uh, their favorite also, candidate really won, except it was stolen from them. Right. Also, extremely dumb and gullible. I think is all. At least it's not not the candidates, but the, well, and all over Twitter today, they're doing these things where they're showing, they're listing registered voters in a certain state, and then the total of who voted yesterday, mm-hmm. and that number's mm-hmm. higher. And then every time somebody's like, okay, well, your registered voter total is either from 2012 or 2016. So, shut Right. 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 Now, this yeah. is gone are the day. I mean, the whole myth around more people voted in the 1960 presidential election in Chicago than there were people in Chicago. You know, there's that whole mm-hmm. thing about mm-hmm. how, how mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Sinatra and the mob uh, stole the uh, mm-hmm. election for John F. Kennedy. And, and they've always decided that has, that's gone on forever. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, it, it, it's, it's, it's lunacy. One of my wife's uh, friends in Michigan um, and she has a political agenda and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> just, just carelessly posted a thing. Oh, people stepping over this bag of so-and-so, right. Uh, of ballots or something like that. Just suggesting, okay, my, I just jump right in. I'm like, so you reported them, right? Like, don't like, if that actually happened, which it didn't, she's full of shit. Uh, she's trying to engender, you know, that I, I know it's impossible that to happen. And anyway, we just having been around it. My mom was a judge when I was a kid. I, you know, I know that. And I did it you know, yesterday. And of course she didn't really have a sensible reply. Um, but 
yeah, if you see that, fucking report it because people that you know work those things take it seriously. So, yeah. Do we know if Todd Ricketts tried to vote with a picture of a ballot from eight years ago or anything? I don't know. Um, <laughs> he showed his tax bill as proof of ID. All right, well, I people, that, I I'm sure people you. haven't tuned in to hear election chat with Mike. Yeah. You know, they got a little of it anyway. Thus concludes our civics talk. So this week, our beloved Bears, whose season feels like it's hanging in the balance, um, mm. despite the fact that they're you know five and three, which um, I don't think any of us expected, but it's not uh, it's not what your record. Well, it is what your record is, Bill Parcells, but it's also how you get there. And uh, that's a little concerning. But that's not what this podcast is about either. We remember crap, and so we're going to remember the Houston Oilers slash um, Tennessee Oilers slash Tennessee Titans. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those uh, youngins among our listeners, and there are some among, you know, and some some Swedes who might not know uh, what we're talking about, the, uh, the Oilers, the good old Houston Oilers, um, were born in 1960. And do you know when they won their first AFL championship? Um, so that presumes that they did win an AL championship, they AFL two. championship, which would be between 1960 and 1969, which, the la- which was the last season of the AFL. Uh, I couldn't even fathom a guess. Did they win the first one? Yes. With George, the George first- Land out there? They yeah they won the first they won I don't know did the AFL begin in 1960 and they I, I I thought it did they won the first two 1960 and 1961 with different coaches wow um, the great Lou Rimkus uh, of course you remember Lou uh, he won the first one and then Wally Lem of course everybody remembers Wally Lem um, Wally won the second one and it looks like um, it looks like Lou coached. There's 19 games. This is so it's it's weird, and I probably should have figured this out before. So Lou coached 19 games. Wally only coached nine. So Did Lou have a heart attack in the second season. He may have. Lou may have died, and then Wally mm. took over. Mm. And, and he, Wally went nine and zero, oh, and then won the title game. So he he only coached 10 games ever for the Oilers. Won them all, and a championship. Won the big one, and was named the AFL Coach of the Year. He's the anti Rick Venturi. And did you? I meant to bring this up. The Athletic, I guarantee you it's because they listen to the podcast, they have a feature story on Rick Venturi. The, the, who, who, who was the center of about a 10-minute conversation that we had last week. Yes. Whose career coaching uh, Division One college and pro was, I believe, 346-1? and one? It was something like that. Yeah, it was amazingly terrible. Uh-huh. I mean, really, the worst I mean, you can say time. that and people laugh, but no. I mean, you'll never... Hired to be fired, the life and times of Rick Venturi by the wow. great Bob Kravitz. What a legacy! What go, a legacy! Today. So what? So our guy, what was it? Wally was Lamb the Wally Lamb. the replacement. Yep, the Lamb. anti okay. Rick never lost. Okay, yeah, yeah I'm looking at. Really, you know. Yeah, he did come back though to sully his career, he, but he did leave Houston after nine and zero and winning the championship. Yeah. You know what it was? He he won the championship in the AFL, 
And then the very next year, the Cardinals hired them. There you go. He wanted to go to the big. He wanted to go to the real league. He went to the- exactly. That's exactly what that must have been. And the Cardinals were new. They left. I believe it was their, it would not have been their first season uh, after having moved out of Chicago South Side. But it's sixty. I want to say that their first season was sixty. Um, but early on, uh, the, his, the the Cardinals must have come a calling, and uh, that was enough to get. Uh, Wally Lemon has 1,000 winning percentage and AFL championship to jump ship. So, so now you of all people, this is completely off the, uh, but you of all people, I'm sure knows why the Chicago. Well, I'm, they probably got the jerseys first and then picked a name, but you know why they were red and white. Right, not just red, but maroon. Maroon. Yes, I want to get. I want to lead the. the <laughs> right. I want to lead the There's witness. A certain type of red. Yeah, you know, yeah. So they were actually probably more of a literal descendant of the the famous uh, Amos Alonzo Stag University of Chicago Maroons, who are definitely named for their um, for their jerseys. Uh, I think we kind of associate the Bears with them because of the nickname that the media gave the Bears, the Monsters of the Midway. But uh, but the Bears are actually borrowed more as far as like font or color from University of Illinois, right. at least well, the colors. Yeah, to show you how cheap. What a low-rent thing the NFL was when it started. The Bears wear navy blue and orange because Hallis bought a bunch of old jerseys from Illinois. His alma mater. The Cardinals are red and white. Or they became, and they picked their nickname uh-huh. to go with it because they bought a bunch of used crap from the University of Chicago. Right, just a few miles away in Hyde Park. Yeah, because for yeah. a long time, college football was, that was football. And the NFL was like this barnstorming sideshow. Yep. You know, people nowadays couldn't wouldn't conceive of it. You know, the, a college yeah. game on a Saturday would get... You know, soldier, good old Soldier's Field under the old thing. They get 130,000 people in there. And yep. just like the Soldier Field that you and I went to as kids, mm-hmm. about 12 of them could actually see what was going on on the field. Right. And then the Bears would play. Although there was a reason the Bears went and played at Wrigley Field for a long time because they didn't need a stadium the size of Soldier's right. Field. And and pre-Red Grange, this was absolutely the truth. And even post-Grange for another you know while. But until, until Grange... College football was played by upstanding, you know, well, college people, right? Uh, see, you know, it, it was a more noble sport. Uh, professional football was a little bit more roguish, and yeah, it did not have anywhere near the the uh, the cachet that it does today, especially compared to college. College was the regal, the the immaculate competition. Yep. And now you scoff at that, with, you know. Now it's which. Which league can exploit athletes more? And the NCAA sure. wins that. Right, because they're not even pretending to pay him. So. <laughs> oh, I should have read ahead. Uh, Wally didn't just sully his um, his record oh, with, with the Cardinals. He came back to coach yeah. the Oilers. I just saw that. 28-38-4. So, yeah. so he was That's, not. He should yeah. have stuck at the 10-0. and 0. You know, that reminds me of Adam Greenberg, who – you know, who had an immaculate 1,000 on-base percentage after seeing one major league pitch and somehow decided to let the Mets pander to him about six years later by coming back, even though it was completely unmerited, and thus became one of thousands of ballplayers otherwise that uh, did not have any sort of a distinction. That would have been that would have been Wally. He was nine, so, yeah, he flames out in the NFL, comes back to Houston in 66, uh, to reclaim the the glory and uh, uh, yeah, just and now we had to look him up on Pro Football Reference to even know who he was. 
So Greenberg, it was the Marlins, maybe against the Mets. Because um, I think Ozzy was that the year Ozzy managed the Marlins. I'm pretty sure Ozzy Guillen was his manager in his was in his was Ozzy yes. only there one year, or am I thinking of Joe Girardi? Uh, Joe was only there one year, right? One manager of the yeah. year and got fired. Um, Ozzy was there. Let's see. Do do do. Come on, internet. He was there in 2012. Was he there? In, I don't think he was there in 2011. So he was also we, a, a one-year wonder. A one-year wonder. Yep. Got himself a nice fat contract and then got canned after one year. Nice work if you can, can get it and lose it. <laughs> so good job. Um, in, uh, incidentally, because I, I was curious why this first coach of the Houston Oilers in the first year of their existence you know, disappeared halfway through the second season. I thought maybe he died of a heart attack. Oh, you know what would be great, though? It would be if um, he was drilling for oil in his backyard and it hit. And he just quit. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, hey, fuck you guys. I got real yeah. money. Boots, you know, popping but up on my actually, backyard. And here's something that I've learned tonight. This coach, Lou Ripkus, did not die uh, halfway through the 1960s. He lived, in fact, he lived all the way till 1998, mm. uh, shortly after a Bears-Titans game. October 3, he died on Halloween 1998. So he lived a long life, but interestingly, um, he was a Notre Dame grad, and he played high school at Tilden, Illinois. Oh, there you go. Which, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say Johnny Kerr went to, but I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. So, Lou Rimkus, well, I salute you. Among the uh, among great Eilers, Oilers, Oilers, Oilers coaches of former Bear offensive coordinator Ed Hughes. Coach. Ed Hughes was a was a Oilers head coach. Nineteen seventy one, four nine and wow. One. Was he the, and he was the Bears offensive coordinator, right? Yes, he was. The, know, was a, he was the one Ditka would go rip the play sheet out of his hand and then just take over when things were going bad. Okay. Among others, I'm sure Ed wasn't the only one. Yeah, I always had a hard time remembering exactly who the Bears OC. I think they had a, maybe a couple back then. Um, I think Ed was named the, Plum. I think he won yeah. a Super Bowl ring as offensive coordinator. Okay, so it was the '85. Because I, I mean, think. you know, you, it's not hard to remember a lot of the Bears' defensive coordinators. Yep, offensive not. coordinator Ed Hughes. Ed Hughes, all right. I'm, I must be thinking of the, maybe some of the more position coach. Ted Plum was the name I was thinking, but he might have been like a tight end. He coach. was the receivers coach. Dick ah, Stanfell was the offensive. Dick Stanfell. Jim Dooley, okay, was the offensive consultant. And and yeah, and the former head coach too. He came back. He was a head coach. It's funny the they series. list all those offensive guys, and then they list uh, Buddy Ryan, and then nothing. There's no defensive <laughs> coaches listed. No defensive line coach. I did it all. <laughs> Didn't he? That's great. <laughs> of course, the, Buddy was a. Sorry, oh, I was going to say Buddy with Buddy because yeah, because Buddy. Buddy's a, there's a tie-in obviously there with Buddy the, was with a the coach Oilers. in Houston as a defensive coordinator. I didn't even think of uh, bringing that up at all today, but it popped into my head because uh, it was a pretty hilarious one season. Do you remember any of the details about Buddy Ryan? I, I have a pretty vivid recollection. I remember because you. I remember Buddy uh, punching Kevin Gilbride on the sideline. Okay, that that will fit into the story. For, if you back up a little bit, the Houston Oilers, you know, we are playing the Tennessee Titans, but again, we'll recall this is the same franchise, so this is relevant. Houston Oilers in 1992 uh, suffered, I, I think it's statistically the worst uh, blown lead in NFL playoff history. 
to the Buffalo Bills in 1992. Um, and uh, it cost – it did not cost Jack Pardee the job as head coach, but it did cost Houston their job or their, Houston's defensive coordinator his job. And Buddy had been fired from um, as head coach of the Eagles about a year uh, earlier. He'd been out of football, I think, maybe a year. And they brought him back uh, because that defense blew a 32-point lead in the second half. Now, when Buddy came into training camp, his whole thing was this defense isn't really that bad. My issue, and this was making news in training, that offense has a 32-point lead, and they're freaking throwing the ball, and they don't know how to like run out of clock. And you know, it, you know, he wasn't denying that he could improve the defense, but he really brought a lot of attention to the fact that this run and shoot offense of uh, of um, and he was taking shots across the bow in the media before the season started at offensive coordinator uh, Kevin Gilbride, and uh, so that was already said. That was in training camp. You know, Buddy makes it clear. You know that, that 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 they you know both sides of the ball have to improve, and so Houston has a phenomenal season. I want to say they go thirteen and three. They made it to the title game, but of course Joe Montana with the Chiefs uh, stuck it to Buddy again, and uh, or you know uh, stuck it to Buddy at least for the second time. Uh, but before that, towards the end of the season, as Houston was rallying towards the playoffs, I can let you finish because I think you probably have more of those details in mind, uh, and in a Sunday night game perhaps too. Um. Yeah, it wasn't the punch was in a regular season game, right? And then in right. the playoffs, they played the Joe Montana Chiefs, right, and blew a lead. Right. And the the most famous image was a tight end for the Chiefs. I can't think of who it was. C- catches a touchdown pass, runs into the end zone, and one of the fans in the Astrodome had hung this huge banner that had a spray painted caricature of Buddy. And the Chiefs player took the ball and threw it right and hit Buddy, hit him right in the face with the ball in the end. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but a couple weeks prior to that, all the, you know, Buddy kind of creates a little bit of a toxic environment in the beginning of the season. It kind of you know, but they play well. But then tensions boil over in a in a game late in the season, and and there's like at that point, what like sixty eight year old Buddy Ryan. Yeah. Lunging on the sidelines to, to to cold cock his offensive counterpart. So, um, yeah, good old buddy. Yeah, it's <laughs> not surprisingly if you Google Buddy Ryan Kevin Gilbride, uh, yeah, it's what comes up. Yeah, not surprisingly. Uh, it seems it seems like it was a Sunday night game, but I seem to remember like Paul McGuire and Mike Patrick losing their shit. Yeah, it was 1993. The Oilers that year were 12 and four. 12 and four. I was off by a game. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they they when they lost to Montana and the Chiefs, they were at home. I mean, they had a they were a one or two seed that season, so they did improve after blowing that playoff game the year before. They just they ran into Montana with one last bullet, I guess, and it's uh. Um, so it was a it was a game against the Jets. It's as a nationally televised contest. So back then it was so that's either Sunday or Monday night. Uh, the Oilers were up fourteen to nothing with the half coming up, and uh, Kevin Gilbride decided um, deep in their own end that they were going to chuck it around and gain some and, you know, pick up some more yards. Uh, Warren Moon must have been hurt or you know just took a week off. Cody Carlson. Fumbled at his own 18-yard line with 24 seconds left in the half. <laughs> I, I could picture the rage bubbling up right now as you described this. And that's what play. Buddy went over and took a swing. <laughs> at Kevin Gilbert. Well, 
you know, he was consistent. That was his point in training yeah. camp that, you know, if you – the defense – you can have a great offense, but there are times when you, you know, have to manage the clock. <laughs> you can't just be thinking of scoring all the time or move pushing the football all the time through the air especially. Oh, man. Kevin Gilbride. Was he ever head coach? He ever got his own uh, gig? He he was he worked he's for a while everywhere. Yeah, I don't know if he ever did. So the um, the Oilers, you know, a well-established, successful franchise in football crazed Houston, um, decided that they wanted their own. They didn't want to be in the Astrodome anymore. They wanted a new fangled stadium with, you know, luxury boxes and all that stuff. And uh, the city of Houston was not playing along. So they went off and started talking to uh, uh, the ten- to Nashville, Tennessee, about moving there. And yeah, I don't because think- when you live in the when you live in the fifth when you when you're in the fifth largest city in the country already, why not go to like the 18th, right? Yeah, right. So it's a very savvy move. Um, might be high. They convinced the city of Nashville to build them a stadium, and said, "Screw it, we're going." And the problem was, um, they you know you, you can't you can't just set up a stadium overnight. So Nashville said we're going to need two years. So the Oilers were going to stay in Houston, and that lasted uh, about ten minutes. And they realized that their fans now hated them, and uh, they better get out of town. So they had to come up with an interim home, and uh, the the. Nashville offered up, hey, come play at Vanderbilt. And they didn't like that idea because the stadium of Vanderbilt only seats 40,000 people, and that wasn't going to be enough. So they decided, we'll just we'll, we'll inch our way across the state. We'll just stop in Memphis for a couple of years, build up our rabid fan base out there in, uh, in West Tennessee, and then we'll take them towards the middle of the state with us. And just think how it's like a pil- it's like a pilgrimage. It is really. And Jeff Fisher was the coach, so you know you could see him, you know, playing the flute and with all the rednecks jogging <laughs> along behind him. Uh, so the, the uh, Liberty Bowl in Memphis seats sixty thousand people. That's more like it. That's what we want. So they moved there. So nineteen ninety seven, they are the Tennessee Oilers. They haven't decided what they're going to call themselves. And uh, people in Memphis just couldn't get enough of the Tennessee Oilers. They loved them. Uh, First game, uh, I think it was against the Raiders. Uh, They filled half of the Liberty Bowl, 30,171. Subsequent weeks, they would have uh, liked to have gotten filled half. 17,000, 717,071. 27,208, 26,744. They, um, for NFL football, they had a total attendance, a total home attendance. So, eight home games, 224,000 people. So, here, all right, I know they weren't planning on being in Memphis, uh, permanently, but here's a question that popped into my head. Um, and I don't know how it works nowadays. I, I've, I've kind of assumed it to be the same. But if you don't sell out your games, at least sell out all your tickets, then you're blacked out in the market. I know it hasn't happened for the Bears since 1984, believe it or not, because normally corporations would never swoop, swoop in 
hasn't been an issue. Maybe that's not anymore, but I'm thinking, well, it's kind of hard to build your brand if none of the games are on local television, which I don't think they would have been if they're not selling that place out. Just a side. Yeah, because that was, that was, you know, I don't, are blackouts even a thing anymore? I don't know. See, I was thinking about that. I don't know what they are because you never hear about it ever. Right. And I, and it used to be like a, Wouldn't it be great the, if well, they were enforcing it this year? <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> uh, right. We're not allowed to have anybody. Well, I'm sorry, your game can't be on TV. It says right but here like, in the rule book. So you like, remember, we can't sell tickets. Ah, wait, li- living out by Rockford, would you have been affected then? Were you far enough where it didn't matter? Uh, you were maybe more uh, at the mercy of if whether the game would be on in your region. Well, All I know question. is... That because the Bears were not always that good, shocker, because we spent a lot of time picking it over. But in the early '80s, the Bears were usually not very good. So I remember, oftentimes, uh, there would be this concern, like on Wednesday before the the home game, um, and you know we had some tickets, but of course not everyone's able to go. Ooh, the the three and six Bears might not be on television if there's not a. Um, uh, if they're not sold out. And then usually, is how my dad would explain it, well, like some local businesses, whatever, would end up like buying the, the glut of the tickets that end up being saved. But there were times that I remember, I have a living memory of not being able to watch the Bears on TV. One of them was actually the opening, the, the first game of the season in 1984, right when the Bears were starting to get good. They played the Buccaneers. <laughs> and this is 1984. And I remember uh, like half of the family piling into my dad's car. <laughs> you know, we'd done a little bit of research in the Yellow Pages. Basically, we're like driving through various northwest suburban towns looking for that dish. All right. That oh, was yeah. like on, to- on top of the – and then – investigate all right kids stay in the car i'm gonna go in and see if they're gonna have the bears game and i remember we, we like stopped at three play we went with like arlington heist mount prospect we ended up in schaumburg uh and then the game had already started we heard dennis mckinnon level a block on tampa bay's mike washington that ended his career um which you know proved mckinnon was more than just a you know a receiver but yeah i the first game of the year like we basically had to travel around till we could find a satellite dish to watch the bears in a bar um, and that was the thing. So uh, that's a good question. I'd like to, I'd like to know because it would, you would think that during like the late Wanstat years, <laughs> right? Like who, how the hell were those games always selling out? Cause they were all on TV. Cause of course I was committed to watching them. So, um, but yeah, sorry for the regression on, on, on blackouts. But if that was a, applying in 1996, 1997, when the Oilers had moved to Memphis, then, you know, they weren't going to stay there anyway, but uh, they, they certainly wouldn't have been on television with attendance that low if they still had that policy. Yeah, I don't, I, I can't answer the question about whether we would have been affected watching the Rockford stations. Probably not. You know, it's. So you're lucky. miles from Soldier Field, probably. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're okay. You had a different area code and everything. Yeah. If not, you could just head up to you know, Beloit, sit <laughs> right. in the bar, scare <laughs> off the Packer fans. Actually, there would have been t- well, not then, but there would be times in more recent years where the local affiliate would be like, "Oh, you mean we'll have to show the Packer game instead? Oh, that's too bad." Because <laughs> there are Packer fans who get pissed off all the time. Like we're in first place, the Bears are in last place in the station, and and they and you'll know it because the little sports guys in town will be like, yeah, come on, don't forget on Sunday we've got, you know, Bears Jets, uh, we have to show it. It's how it works. Sorry, folks. So don't call. Chicago, we don't Chicago's still crap. closer than Green Bay. Uh, so the Oilers, so ninety, so they decided uh, after '97. You know what? Vandy sounds pretty good. <laughs> so they went, they played that next season at Vanderbilt, 
and they upped their attendance by a total that year of 50,000 people. So pretty much the same. They had to be a little concerned about just how excited people in Tennessee were for them. But uh, uh, once they built the new stadium, they have not had problems drawing fans. It, yeah, it didn't. It didn't help that they were they were pretty bad around. The, it was it was after that whole Buddy Ryan, Jack Party, Warren Moon era. They were not very good either. Um, you know, and I'm sorry. The stadium in Memphis they played it was that the Memphis Chicks? Like, where, I didn't catch no, it's a Liberty uh, the Bowl. stadium. Oh, the Liberty Bowl. I'm Liberty sorry, Bowl. you did say that. Okay, yeah. okay. Which is like a big, hideous cement thing. With who plays there usually? The, the Memphis University State of Memphis. Or the, the yeah, University it used to be Memphis, Memphis State. Then they, I know. They became right? University of Memphis, and um, and then of course they actually have the Liberty Bowl every year. That's you know the mid-major bowl game that nobody wants to go to because Memphis in December. <laughs> Uh, it might not snow, but it's still not going to be. That it's long. not that nice, yeah. So that was their play. That was their home in night. So that would have been '96, right? And then, or '97. Um, that was '97. '98 they went okay. to Vandy, and '99 they st- opened up. Um, and they the Adelphia and went, Coliseum or whatever they yeah, called and, it. Yeah, and went to the Super Bowl in their uh, only Super Bowl appearance, right? Their first year in that new stadium. '99. Yeah, them, where they fell one yard short. Against yeah, great, uh, great, Dick Vermeil great and Mike Martz uh-huh. and the flying, yeah. the greatest show on turf. I, I kind of like that team, actually, with McNair. Um, not as much as I like the Earl Campbell teams in the uh, late 70s. But but it was uh, great that the people, before they moved into the new stadium, the fans of Tennessee got the perfect Jeff Fisher experience because <laughs> you combine the year in Memphis and the year at Vanderbilt, and they went 16 and 16. Wow. So the guy who his whole career, except for what, like two seasons maybe when they were, uh, was either seven and nine or eight and eight every year. Yeah. You could rely on Jeff for that. And, and he maybe got to St. Louis with the Rams, then that's, that's all he was ever going to do was eight yeah. or seven. Yeah. He, you know, I mean, the early returns, we obviously in retrospect, it was obvious that he was not that good of a coach, but, you know, he, 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 he was with them in Houston and Memphis and then Tennessee's first stadium and then Tennessee's second stadium. He took him to the Super Bowl. They're usually pretty competitive in the aughts, but I know that probably obscured a lot of the flaws that became more obvious as Fisher's coaching career went on. Uh, but he seemed like a pretty good coach in the early going. So He's the, uh, I mean, he's the father of Tennessee pro football, I would think. Sure. I mean, they had their greatest success to this point under the great Jeff Fisher, who I don't know if you know this uh, was an was an '85 Bear. Although he was, yeah, did he play right. at all that year? Was he nope. hurt the whole season? Nope, he did yeah. not play. Asterisk. He's yeah. very prominent though in the Super Bowl highlights on the on the sidelines. You see a lot of Jeff Fisher. Well, I he think knew where the, the camera was. And he, there's he that. He went to he went to Southern Cal. He was always pretty glib. But I think also the narrative is that that was the year that he sort of. Uh, started like you know, Buddy t- took him on his arm as a. Well, that's probably co- why they didn't list any defensive coaches because it was just Buddy and Jeff coaching and everybody. Jeff Fisher, right? Yeah. And in fact, it's probably in Jeff Fisher's best interest to play that up more now. That looking that now that you look at his career and realize how um, ordinary it was. Yeah, he's got a good mustache though. Sure, he does. So he's got that going for him, which is which is nice. Nice, something. So one of the things they didn't bring with them 
Well, when they moved into the new stadium, they decided to rebrand, which, I mean, I, there's got to be oil in Tennessee somewhere, right? Wait, think? well, didn't Jed clamp it? Was he from Tennessee or was he from Texas? I don't, I can't recall. Is well, that in the, in the Appalachians, Lair? right? I was assuming oh, he was yeah. like West he Virginia. Been, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I don't think there's oil that. Wait, so when they, just to finish up on this whole Memphis, uh, Nashville shuttle, they remain the Oilers the first the year in Vanderbilt Stadium. So yes, they're the Tennessee the first, Oilers. The played. first okay. two seasons in Tennessee, they were the so, they were officially the Tennessee Oilers. Okay, so when they moved into the new stadium, that's when they rebranded. Yes, that became the the uh, Tennessee Titans, and um, not okay, and gave up um, one of the iconic helmet and logos, the oil derrick. I mean, it's that's a nice, point. simple, cool helmet. They gave that up for that. The weird, um, who was what it? is their logo one of those now? guys it, calls it the flying, the flaming thumbtack or whatever the hell it is. It's on the side of I, there. Well, just the fact that I have to Google image what even their logo is, like it doesn't even readily come to mind. No, it's I know their colors. Yeah, it's somehow they tried to tie in the the city of Nashville flag in there somewhere, and then there's oh, a that's tea, right, and there's right flames and. All kinds right. of shit. It's a flaming tea. Uh, you're right about that, Derek. That is an that was an iconic. Yeah, they were uh, cool. You know, the the baby blue and red. Yeah, which they still. I mean, they kept the they now they have like the shades of blue and they have red mm-hmm. and they have some gray or silver or some shit. I mean, their uniforms are not terrible. I mean, it's not like they completely screwed them up, but the old ones were really good. And I always hate when a team screws up. Well, it's mostly the logo itself and the uniforms and the other design, I think, right? Because the, the Derek is what would constitute a logo, right? Yeah. And then just the – they messed with the color scheme a little and yeah. thought they made it better. They didn't. Um, so another thing that they, they didn't bring with them was uh, an iconic NFL fight song. Right up there with Bear Down Chicago Bears and mm. the, uh, uh, the whatever that thing is they sing in Washington. Like, uh, all right, so just hail, for all you hail to the Redskins, there, right? Which I have, which uh, honestly compels me to admit that was the first NFL fight song, Hail to the Redskins. Uh, and that got Hallis working on, I don't know, finding some musicians in a basement in some dungeon somewhere that would how come we just didn't hire Ed to do it? Didn't Ed, wasn't Ed a lounge singer, right? I thought he was his he driver. Was shiftless, and he didn't like. He didn't want him marrying Virginia, and he was, he was not a fan for a long time. Is George Hallis's driver, and then or chauffeur or whatever, and then yeah, ends up pr- providing him like what forty six grandchildren or, um, yeah. <laughs> Ed McCaskey. did he? He didn't write. He had nothing to do with it. You're, no, that's a he had, he had complete out of the air joke. Yeah, yeah. but but that was a singer. The Bears wrote, but the right. I did know that. But the Bears, uh, the Bears came out with Bear Down Chicago Bears at, uh, in response to the Redskins fight song. They were big rivals. Those two are probably the, the the premier teams in the early '40s. They met in the title game three out of four years. Uh, 40, 42, and 43, and um, and George Preston Marshall, the Redskins owner, and they were the Redskins back there, so I can say that uh, there was, you know, they had moved from Boston, which is funny when you think about it. Might still be the Redskins if they were in Boston, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they came out with that fight song, and then the Bears did, and then, but the history of fight songs in the NFL is not necessarily uniform. So no, um, another famous one. 
um, which now is sadly is lost because of relocation, as the disco version uh, San Diego Superchargers, which is a, a if if you Google that, it's an earworm. You will sing San Diego Superchargers all Do you day. remember it? Would I remember it? I only remember, the, it? I only remember the chorus. But I still, when I see them, I think it. I immediately start to sing San Diego Superchargers to myself. Is it from their inception in the I don't know. I wasn't kidding. It's a disco song. Okay, so, all right. It's not terrible. Would have been Don Don Coriel, Air Coriel. uh, uh, Steve McGarry may have blown it up. It may be from that area. Sure. Okay, I got you. But another one that's iconic is... is, uh, is the Houston Oilers fight song, which yeah has I, I didn't know. know it even has this. It has this very long first verse, which has a story. Um, but all anybody ever remembers is the chorus because they used to play it. You could hear it during games because they would play it. They scored a touchdown or whatever. Um, and that was uh, people can love them singing on the podcast. But that was Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, number one. We're the Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, number one. I remember that song. The guy who wrote it is a guy named Lee Offman, O-F-M-A-N. So I'm going to guess probably George's uh, uncle. Right. <laughs> um, so some some people listening at home, if they're old enough, are like, no, 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 no. That's the Dolphins fight song. What? Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins. Are you Dolphins, shitting me? One. Well, there's a reason. Lee Offman wrote both of them. He wrote the Dolphin one first. Okay. He printed, he had 10,000 copies made, and he went around uh, trying, first trying to find an agent to help him sell it, and then going around trying to get it played on the radio, and then to just sell it out of his car, and he couldn't get anybody to buy it. So he wrote a slightly different version for the Oilers, and that one, took off and he actually okay, got so, money for it but it is an ex- the, the dolphins actually still use his original which they must have paid so, him something for so it was their official song they both teams so why, playing why at was the same running? time had the same song okay. but my question is if they had already uh agreed to use it as their fight song why the hell was this guy driving around trying to get radio stations to play like, why was he promoting it he already he he made it. The team it wasn't adopted catching on, it. and it's really weird because it was 1972. So the the year the, that Miami went yeah, yeah undefeated. So it's not like it's not like oh it's a bad year for the Dolphins and the fans aren't right. into it. It's like no, this is the year they're going to be into it more than any. And, he actually and they were like eh. perfect. Time. Yeah, he picked the perfect time to do this. Wow. Actually, okay. it says here that he got no traction until they won the Super Bowl. Okay. And then fans started to started to get played, but he um, okay. But what's funny is I don't I never knew the Dolphins a had a fight song and then b it was I, uh, all I knew was I knew the Oilers. I knew that somebody else had the Oilers had a had a fight song just like the Oilers. So I that's I why did I not. googled it to find out. I learned something new yes. today. Um, but I remember the Oilers song. That's the so that's what kind of is, is is making is re, you know causing me to reel. A well, that's bit. because you were you couldn't get enough Dan Pastorini, so you, you know were tuning I, in every week. 
here's the thing. I, I don't know that I that I hated Pittsburgh, but I think I don't know. I was only seven years old when they won their fourth and final Super Bowl in the Bradshaw era. I think there, and that was the same year the Pirates won. And I, I respected the Pirates. I think I respected both of those teams, but I was terrified of them, and I just wanted them to lose, probably because I was so terrified of them. Definitely the Pirates. Right? But you know, because the Pirates are badass, yeah. You know? Parker and Stargell and Mike Eastler. Uh, the St- right, and the black and gold. And the Steelers are very similar. Um, I, I know the Pirates World Series in '79 was a one-off, but the, the Steelers were perennially good from you know the mid '70s on. Um, but for I, for whatever reason, because I, I saw what I'm saying is I don't know that I hated either team, but for some reason, maybe it was like rooting for the underdog, which came to me naturally as a kid. Uh, I remember rooting hard for the Oilers uh, against Pittsburgh in the 19. I want to say it was the '79. Uh, AFC Championship game. Oilers are likable, man. Like Earl Campbell, even though we had Peyton, and I've said in previous podcasts that I generally kind of got defensive and sneered towards like the likes of Tony Dorsett and Billy Sims because I was a little defensive about Peyton. I, I didn't really feel that way about Campbell, man. Campbell was just awesome. And Bump Phillips was awesome. So that must have been it. And I remember just watching that championship game rooting hard, and they got hosed on a uh, on an official's call. Pastorini to it was uh, forget the receiver for Houston, but his feet were in bounds. If it happened today, Houston goes to the Super Bowl probably, or at least that game turns out differently. Uh, but they were man, they were a really good team. But they were basically they became really good for the, a, the short window when Pittsburgh was still down, you know, dominant, and eventually it turned to dust. Bump Phillips left, and nothing really happened there until uh, Buddy Ryan came in the late '80s, but. Yeah, that's that's what I got. So another thing I remembered about them was um, during, I guess Dennis Miller was on Monday Night Football two seasons. 2000 and 2001? So his first season, one of the first games, um, I remember his, I, think, I don't know if this is exactly his first joke or not, but a player had had uh, minor groin surgery. And Dennis said, it's only minor groin surgery if it's not your groin which I thought was yep, funny. It's good. Um, but he had, a, he, he, they, so he's doing a Titans game and they show Bud Adams in the owner's box and they go back to, um, it must, maybe it might've even been the first game there. I don't know, but they go back to Dennis and he says, the field is real grass. Do you think that was artificial turf? We saw there referring to Bud's obviously terrible. Wow. Turf. Wow. I, thought was, I remember hearing it at the time, thinking that was pretty funny, because I always like a good toupee joke. Uh, Dennis had to, uh, not only did they make him apologize, he had to insist that that was Bud's real hair. Oh, Jesus Christ. You know what? People must have photos of Dennis Miller, because I'm just going to say, I don't care for him now, I, unless I, I feel, I, sometimes I've even thought, like, he's been compromised. Like, why yeah, would he's he... Not, he's, He's why would he be relevant these days? Why would he be such a toady though? Like for the for for the establishment because I did like him back in the day, and I was I, I actually I actually thought I didn't see what the problem with him was. Doing. I, I liked the idea, and I didn't I didn't think that it was a bad deal when he was in the booth those two years. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a stand I'm not standing for Dennis Miller because I don't you know care for him now, um, but I didn't really. I didn't see that that was really an issue. And and he was otherwise universally mocked for that job, which I never quite got. You know, I don't know. I'm looking at, but it might actually be Bud's hair. That <laughs> might've been why he had to apologize. Now 
there are certain pictures where he's let it grow out a lot and he has it swooped over. And you're like, oh yeah, that's obviously a toupee. But then there's others where he's got it cut a little shorter. Even And actually in later years, when he let it go gray, because he was also dying it, which wasn't helping. Yeah. Uh, that might be his hair. I got There's a picture you know here of him flipping I'm, off the yeah. camera. So I'm going to put that on the post so people can judge for themselves. Maybe that's maybe yeah. Dennis had to apologize or, right. or had to insist it was hair because it may have actually been hair. I don't take back what I said about Miller being compromised, but maybe in that situation, yeah, he was forced to deal with the fact the that ESPN he ombudsman was truly at him. risk of hey, slavery. Hey, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not, that's hair, man. That's hair. You got that, to apologize. Right. That is not a, uh, a Paul Finnemore creation. So I will admit, I do not have a lot of memories of actual bear um, Oilers or Titan matchups. Um, the one game that immediately comes to mind, though, is the it w- I th- I thought it was the the first ever NFL game to end in overtime on a safety, but it was mm-hmm. not. It was the second. Um, but it, the Bears won nineteen seventeen mm-hmm. in Tennessee. Do you remember who got? It's kind of a trick question. Because, well, I'll just tell you. Two players got credit for the sack. It's 2004 was the season, right? Was one of them a Goulier? Was yes. he on the Bears one was then? One was And the other um, was a guy who was around for quite a while. Really? Yes. Uh, was he a lineman like yes. a Goulier? It was two linemen meeting at the quarterback. Was it Alex Brown? It was Alex be... Brown. Alex Brown oh, and Adewale was a, was And do you guy. know... Who, um, do you know who they sacked? Oh, um, was it Billy Volek? It was. It was Billy Volek. <laughs> and the best three. part of this was Wally, the guy he beat for the sack, future bear, Fred Miller. Oh. And Olin Cruz probably wanted to go over and punch him in the face. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so on the, was it last week? On the post game, yeah, I think it was last week on the post game show. Because um, it's Olin Krutz, it's it's Olin Krutz, Lance Briggs, um, Alex Brown, and Cap. okay, and they have the post game show on whatever Comcast Sportsnet is now, NBC Sports Chicago. It was either that week or the week before. No, it was it was the, we were talking about the Javon Wims play, and what a knucklehead, and should they get rid of him? And Olin is sitting there. And everybody kind of looks at him, and he's like, I don't think I should probably comment on this. Because I had a rather public, or a kind of a famous incident where I did something, and I'm glad I didn't get unconditionally released. I give, I give Olin credit for being self-aware. Yep. And the other two laughed, you know, kind of annoying, like, eh. Well, because they were all teammates. Olin's really all, good they, on that show. Yeah, Olin's actually. I hear him on the score. He's actually pretty. He's pretty well prepared. All three of those guys. Um, would you say it was um, Olin, um, Briggs, and um, Alex who was Brown. the third one? Yeah, they were on the Super Bowl team. So yeah, they all. So they all got the joke. Yes, and last year Matt Forte was the fourth. Okay. Um, okay. So they. Yeah, Olin's a relatively. Like, oh, this is Olin's second season, and I don't know why, but. Watching Olin is when I immediately thought, I know how Marquee can liven up their post-game show. Actually, they should just have Olin do it. Um, is Miguel Montero. 
for some reason, kind of the maybe the attitude, the I'll say anything bluntness. Yeah. Uh huh. I think Miggy would be really good on that. Show. You know what? Probably yeah. Get fired after sure. a week, but it would be worth it. I wonder if his agent is still answering his calls. That's not a. That's actually a pretty good. I don't recall how fluent uh, Miggy was in English. Honestly, Ozzy does. Well, I gotta, and you can only understand a third of what Ozzy. Says. I've never understood Ozzy, and I always like wonder, like, do I have too much wax in my ears? Am I getting old? Like, is it? Well, he he I, not I would hear only Ozzy on the score, and he talks so fast. Yes. I don't know what the hell he's it's, saying. It's really it's the speed more than the accent. He runs all everything together, and yeah. so you get, it's really hard to understand. So it. it's this mishmash of like Spanglish and <laughs> it's very and fast like, jar- and jargon from jargon from English and speech cadences. Yeah, I, I can't quite crack the code when Ozzy talks. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a good call. Put Miggy on the set. So the other game I remembered it was a little more recent. 2012 Titans at Bears. No, Bears at Titans again. Bears at Titans. 2012? Yes. Okay. The six and one Bears and the three and five Titans. Okay. And Still not remembering it. Lovey Smith matched up against the great Mike Munchak. Yep. First quarter score, Bears 28, Titans 2. I remember this game. Didn't the defense score like eight touchdowns in this game or something? Or didn't Peanut score two? Or So um, the scoring started... Um, with Corey Wooten blocking a punt and returning oh. it five yards for a touchdown. Or maybe he didn't. He, I don't know if he blocked the punt. He, he certainly he recovered it for a touchdown. Mm-hmm. Um, then the Bears got the Titans on the board um, when Jamarcus Webb, the great Jamarcus Webb, got called for oh, holding God. in the end zone. So 7-2. Oh. to two. That is, sums it up. Then an 8-yard Matt Forte um, touchdown run. Then a 46-yard Brian Urlacher interception return. Then wow. Brandon Marshall caught the first of his three touchdown passes from Jay. Okay. So that rounded out the 28-2 first quarter. Uh, other scores were three Robbie Gold field goals, two of them 25 yards or less. So obviously great red zone offense from the Jesus. Bears. Uh-huh. Um, right. Wow. And well, that was it, because then there were the fourth quarter, there were two Brandon Marshall touchdowns. Chris Johnson scored on an 80-yard touchdown rush uh, for the okay. Titans. I so believe, only one, I believe only the Titans turned the ball over five times. So that's what I'm thinking. Uh, the, the defense actually only scored one touchdown. Special teams scored another. The rest was on the offense. Uh, I do still sort of remember that game. So the, the Bears were 6-1 and one going in or after that game? They were, they, that took them to 7-1. and one. Jesus Christ, and they missed the playoffs. That was Lovey's last year. So I want to say they probably their next game was probably against the Houston Texans on Sunday night. So Jay may have gotten hurt in that Tennessee game because the great Jason Campbell came on, and the Bears played two good teams and couldn't beat them and eventually slid out of the playoffs, even though they won 10. When did they get five turnovers? Erlacher had an interception. Um, Erlacher had a fumble recovery. Kelvin Hayden had two fumble recoveries. Kelvin Hayden, wow. And Chris Conti had a fumble recovery. Now, now I've been triggered. So one, two, Thanks. three, four, five. Five turnovers. Okay. All right, well, let's solve the mystery here of the 2012 Bears. And see the, what happened to them? The, yeah. I mean, seven and one? That, 
So they went uh seven and one quickly became nine and six. Was it the Texans the next week? Yes. They lost thirteen to six a, to the Texans. Yeah, that was a Sunday night game that I went to it was fucking miserable. It, like sleeted sideways all game. Went to and San Francisco, they, got beat yep, thirty two to night. seven. That, that was that was the uh Colin Kaepernick's coming out party, basically. Beat the Vikings, lost to the Seahawks in overtime. I don't remember that. I don't even remember that game. I don't remember that game, but no. Lost yeah, to the Vikings. Lost to the Packers. Oh, I remember the Seahawks game. That was Russell Wilson. The Bears had that game done. That that was the game that basically helped Russell Wilson turn his corner in his career, where uh, the Bears had a seven point lead with like two minutes to left in the game, and Seattle was down at their own like six, and Wilson managed to put together a ninety yard plus drive to tie it, and then they won in overtime. Absolutely, I remember that game now. Yeah, so they lost um, five was, of six, and then they won their last two games. They beat they beat the Cardinals twenty eight thirteen and the Lions. And then Detroit. Yeah, and yeah. then did not make the playoffs. And it was unfortunate, you know, they won ten games and missed the playoffs, which is hard to do. But it cost Lovey his job. The uh, huh, the only other Houston game I remember, and it turns out I didn't quite remember because I thought the Bears won. But, you know, we were talking about uh, – we've talked in the past about the NFL and NBC and how it always seemed like a very special – a very special Bears game, right? In the uh, in the early 80s, the, the NBC was the home to the AFC teams and CBS was the home to the NFC. Uh, like we talked about the Bears hosting the Chargers and it was, it's on Channel 5 instead of Channel 2. So that happened in 1980. It's the only time I would have seen uh, Walter or Earl Campbell uh, play. It was against Peyton. Somehow I thought the Bears won that game, just like they beat the Chargers, which you wouldn't have expected, but they didn't. Um, however, I looked at, I did look it up because I wasn't sure, and um, and Peyton did not have a, a huge game. I think he had 60 yards. But uh, Earl um, got over 200 yards rushing that game in Soldier Field with presumably Don Crickey at the microphone. <laughs> so, um, and uh, I think Pastorini was their, was their quarterback, but uh, – you know, they those 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 were fun teams. Um, when you know, and he was a fun running back. But the thing with Campbell was, he was so huge and he took such a licking that he was out of the league. Like he was, a, he lost his effectiveness after like four or five years. And I, we know that to be true of all running backs now. Uh, but it was a different time, and it just seemed kind of swift how quickly uh, Earl Campbell's career ended. Or, or it didn't end. He went to the Saints. He reunited with Bum Phillips, and he joined a backfield with George Rogers, who was a big-time running back for them after winning a Heisman in college. But that's Campbell, South Carolina. That's right. But Campbell Earl only had – and Earl was – I think Earl may have been a Heisman winner. If not, he was a great college player at Texas. But he really probably only had like four or five years. Uh, but I got to tell you, for those of us that lived through it, man, he was pretty freaking exceptional in those in those years. Um. Yes, and then just the combination of how big he was and the tearaway jerseys, so he'd be practically naked by the end of some right. runs. Where jersey guy, four guys would have a piece of jersey. Supposedly, he uh, one of the best. Uh, we talked about great quotes from John McKay. We've also referenced Bump Phillips before. When Bump Phillips died a couple years ago, I saw some a bevy of fantastic quotes, and one that stuck with me was uh, Earl Campbell. Was you know big and fast and right, but he wasn't a long. He wouldn't have been a long distance runner, let's say. And it was pointed out to Bump Phillips that Earl Campbell could not complete a one mile run, and uh, Phillips said, "Well, when it's fourth and a mile, I ain't going to give him the ball." <laughs> That's good. 
Um, so you mentioned Dan Pastorini. Well, I mentioned him, and then you mentioned him again. Um, sure. This is what we do. So on the uh, on the ESPN Plus show, Peyton's Places, with the great Peyton Manning, which is actually mm-hmm. a really entertaining show. He goes around. They did it for the 100th. Was it last year, the 100th anniversary of the NFL? Yeah. Um, and he he did things. He did these wacky stunts. Like there was a um, there was a famous thing with the Giants where uh, Y8, I think it was Y8 Tittle, somebody, some giant quarterback stood on the top of this building and threw a ball down, and one of the wide receivers caught it. Threw it, it was like a 20-story building. So him and Chris Carter reenacted that, and they did some other stuff. Well, one of the things awesome. he did was, so Dan Pastorini was the first quarterback to wear a piece of equipment that is now relatively standard for quarterbacks. Do you know what that piece of equipment was? It's not a cup. Uh, elbow, uh, chin strap, mouth guard. A flak jacket. He, oh. had, he had hurt his ribs, and so and they built that they put this thing on him with and like when I played in high school, our quarterback because we were we ran the ball so much, I always had to wear one. Um, so Peyton in the thing, him and Dan Pastorini go into the old Astrodome that's still there because uh, apparently occasionally George Strait needs to have a concert and somebody needs to have a tractor pull. Um, <laughs> and they put the, they put the uh, flak jacket on Peyton. And Pastorini hits it with a baseball bat. <laughs> it's actually really funny. He's like, "Really, give me a good whack," and he hits it. Is it is it one of those things where where uh, um, where they had evolved so much in quality that like Pastorini was amazed at how? I th- oh, that's a good question. I think the one Peyton had was an was like the uh, was like a version oh. of the original. <laughs> so Peyton's more like, "Are you really? You're gonna hit me with that? when we're in this thing?" <sighs> Yeah, there's some. There's, not... one, there's one where him and um, oh, some little white wide receiver that he played with in both Indianapolis who, and who Brandon Stokes. Okay. No, Peyton. Oh, Peyton. They um, he, Stokely runs pass patterns, and Peyton throws different footballs from over the eras. Like okay. He's, so he's got like the big one that looks like a pumpkin. Because you know, the ball has gotten got smaller and smaller and smaller over time. Is that I did not know that actually. And so okay. Peyton shows how hard it is to throw him, and then Stokely actually really likes catching like the pumpkin. <laughs> he's like, hey, I like this. It's like catching a you know, catching a beach ball. We can't really drop it. And then there's one where um, Dion Sanders teaches Peyton how to be a defensive back, and I think. Dion's kid runs pass patterns against Peyton, and it doesn't go well because Peyton is not exactly a uh, well, not a, a fast twitch athlete. So it's a pretty good show. <laughs> but yeah, awesome. there's a Dan Pastorini one where you can watch him hit Peyton with a baseball bat in the ribs, which is kind of fun. That's great. I, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite uh, tickled that we've uh, name checked Dan Pastorini so much. He, you know, it's an otherwise sort of in the whole scheme of things, a very sort of like an undistinguished career, but he had a little bit of a bright light. He was the, the quarterback of a competitive Houston team for a while, but yeah, otherwise kind of forgotten to the sands of time. And, uh, uh, but you know, certainly remembered. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> and it's true. I had him up on Wikipedia. It's one of the first things he's uh, referenced for is the, one of the first guys to wear a flak jacket. So that's like his thing. I never knew that. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't steer you wrong. Um, I appreciate that. So, despite the fact they've been in, oh my, things not working. Um, the Titans have been in in Tennessee for quite a while now, 
when you Over look at their, years. at their all-time leaders, I don't know why this thing is taking so long to load here. There, there we go. I wonder how I wonder how many of them are Tennessee because you're almost fifty-fifty now. I think every one of these guys played. No, you're not. You're not fifty-fifty. The, no, the, 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 the forty years yeah. one place and twenty the other. Yeah, yeah. But everybody here is well. I think everybody on this list played at least part of their career in Houston. Um, some of them, all of it. So, do you know who their all-time leading passer is? Um, all-time leading. It's could not it be Dan Blanda. Pasquini. Could it be George Blanda from no, the AFL? Because no, he, more did, he did rack up more recent than that. Let's just say that. Um, but Buddy would have been pissed that they. Oh, were I know who it is. It's Warren. Yeah, yeah Warren, it's Warren Moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought. I thought. I got Thirty-three thousand yards, one hundred sixty-five touchdowns. Uh, the running back played in, if I'm not mistaken, played in both places. I think he started. Uh, Eddie, it had to be Eddie George, Eddie right? George, yep. Great running back. He played a lot longer than Earl. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wide receiver played with Warren. One of the little, it, one, of, one of their little guys running around. Er, Ernest Givens. Ernest Givens. Is it really? Yes. I didn't know he. Okay, I remember Givens. So he's not. I wouldn't have guessed. Better than they had a whole. Yeah, they had like uh, uh, Jared Haywood Jeffries. Was yeah, that, was spelled that his name wrong. It always annoyed right. me. <laughs> Jeff Fires. Jeff Fires. Like, you can't spell your own name. I wonder if it was just like but, they got it wrong on the jersey once, and he just wouldn't ever correct it. It's like, ah, it's fine. Just leave it. There. Yeah. But, okay. So it's just I didn't know that Givens was the standout of that. They had like three or four guys. So okay. So all right, Ernest Givens. Wow. All time leading scorer. Well, we got to go to our place kickers, right? Would yep. it, uh, would, would the Tony Fritch from the late seventies, nope. early eighties? This guy um, could be oh, related it's... to Jimmy the Greek Snyder. Nope. Oh man, Al for a loop on that. Del Del Greco. Greco. Al the Greek. I doubt it oh, translates directly. Right. Over a thousand points. It would be Al of the Greek, I believe. And then the winningest coach in um, Houston, Tennessee, is, Tennessee history. Is he it coached Guppy? all three places. Yeah, it's Fisher. Yep. Yeah. That's the guy. Yeah. How about that? 142-20-0. 142 so, wins. So his run there with McNair was, you know, I guess good enough. Wait, what was his record? He was 22 games over for them, 142 and 120. 142 and 120, yeah. Ties. No ties. Let's see. He went seven and nine, eight and eight, eight and eight, eight and eight. <laughs> thirteen and three, thirteen and three, seven and yep. nine, eleven and five, twelve and four, five and eleven, four and twelve, eight and eight, ten and six, thirteen and three. Boy, is there a long time? Yeah, eight and, and eight, six the... and ten, and finally okay. fired. And what was the overall? Was it at right at five hundred? No, twenty-two and over. He... Uh, right, you just said that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but a lot of 8-8s. Eight so he's he specialized in that over his career. No, he did. Pretty much more. Yeah, it was almost uncanny. Yeah, who knew? A, a member of the quote-unquote, a quote-unquote member of the 85 Bears would end up being some franchise's all-time winning as coach. Fun eight, fact. Seven later. years just with them where he went either 8-8 eight eight or 7-9. Wow. So one of those guys who would never bottom out Enough for you right. to get the number one pick. It's brilliant, really, when you think about it. And then they got McNair and didn't play him the first season. 
Well, Remember he ca- he was he was a first round pick, and he was a sort of a fringe Heisman candidate. But he went to a Division three school, Alcorn State, yeah. which I want to say, the same school that a, the year before the Bears drafted John Theory out of. I might be wrong. <laughs> probably uh, they were probably scouting McNair. You know who we really like? This guy. Hey, one step. Wait till you get a load of this guy. Is that Charles Haley? Is that yeah? <laughs> I, I might be wrong. They may, I, Char, uh, John Theory and, and Steve McMurray may not have both gone to Elkhorn State, but I want to say that they did, and they were a year apart. But McNair was one of those fringe Heisman candidates, and he was still a first-round pick. But I think the reason he didn't end up um, getting an NFL, uh, he didn't end up starting for a while uh, was because he was drafted more for potential as the first-round pick, and they needed a few years to get him acclimated. So he. Did he, oh, wait a minute, did he not play at all his first season? When did he get drafted? May not have. Because the first year he played, he split time. He, he was Chris Chandler's backup. But another former Bear great, uh-huh. Will Fuhrer, actually played in more games than Steve McNair. Dude, I never would have guessed that Will Fuhrer had played anywhere outside of his uh, one So he start did play. He, he started two games his, his, his rookie year. He went 2-0. Okay, okay. But he wasn't the full-time starter in 96 unless he got hurt. Because he was, um, he only started four games then, and then he started. Then in '97, he, he took over as the quarterback. He, okay, gotcha, gotcha. But well, he, and he was, a, and he was and kind and of a badass. He was. He was, I, I, he was an exciting. Player. Then he had now an affair bad. with a woman who shot and killed. <laughs> <laughs> things, things took a turn. <laughs> That's a polite way of putting it. Yes. On the Fourth of July, I remember that. And uh, and yes, he, he and John and John Theory were teammates in college. Oh, there you go. And yet, John Theory still lives. So did the so Wani had some interesting draft ideas. So he took he took Theory because he yeah you're right he's going to be the next Charles Haley. He drafted Pat Riley from the University this, of Miami because he had torn his ACL. And ah, oh, it's like getting an extra first round draft pick. No, uh-huh. it's like getting a lineman who's already had his ACL repaired. That's what it's like. <sighs> what? <laughs> Oh, I yeah. didn't mention, occasionally on that NBC Sports Chicago uh, postgame show, you get Dave Wanstead. Oh, I can't get enough of Dave. I can't no, get enough great. of Wani. I, I, I accidentally hear him on the score every if, now if and it's then. A, if it's a Monday or Thursday night, you get Wani because he's, he's around. Yeah. He's not off in Fox doing his other stuff, so he's just he's around. Further, further proving the theory that you don't even have to have been remotely connected to the '85 Bears, but just the Bears franchise. To no matter how you perform, you will uh, always have an opportunity in town. He's the he's the last Bears coach to win a playoff road game. 1994 San Francisco. No, wait, 1994 Minnesota. Minnesota. That was a the ultraback Raymond. Yeah, Raymond had a big game. Yeah, yeah, I remember that game. You know, we, we were only a couple of years removed from Duke, so we were still sort of in that zone, that mode of usually going into the playoffs. It had actually been a very torturous at the time, uh, two year absence, and then proceeded. Then the Bears proceeded to make one playoff appearance for the next, I think, twelve seasons. So, so you kind of wonder, do you, how many coaches have ever won a playoff road game for the Bears? Is it three? It could did it in '84. Yeah, and Hallis? Washington. Is yeah, because nobody else did it, right? Right. It, it's got to be. <laughs> Good lord! Just a playoff game. They've like had a team for a hundred years, 
and they got three. Well, I mean, I know Hal has coached for 40 years, but still, uh, that's 60 well, years and two guys won road playoff games. Yeah, yeah. I never I'm, sure Nate, I'm sure Nate is about to put his name on that list. Man, you know, they just got to keep sliding out so they don't play. So they well, play no, on the road. The good news for the chance. Bears is they're um, currently, if the playoffs started today, they wouldn't be in them. But if the season can't be completed with everybody playing um, 16 games, the NFL is considering adding a playoff team to both leagues. All Currently, right. that would be the Bears in the NFC. How exciting. Greatest Maybe that's why the Bears suddenly have a COVID outbreak. They're trying to sabotage it so they can make the playoffs. <laughs> Ryan Pace, always thinking. Yeah, it's a re- it's a really progressive organization for for whom we root. When you think about it, yeah, why do it's you why we remember it's it's why we remember so much crap. I think that in life you should you should you should be able to, you shouldn't pick a religion until you're like eighteen, uh-huh. and you shouldn't pick your sports teams for good until that about that age. I'm you not be sure allowed. how. To- to just because my dad yeah. saddled me with Catholicism, the Cubs, and the Bears, and and Jerry Faust in Notre Dame football. Um, oh, he was right, the most right. successful high school coach. Yeah, he was, it's, yeah no, it's, it's yeah. not going to work. I don't know. So basically, just be a front runner until you can. No, you can just you get to like you, you get to change. Like you, root, uh-huh. you you sit and watch games with your mom or your dad or whoever. Yeah, yeah. But then when you're 18, you have to declare, and you can make okay, an educated decision, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah so it's yeah. like your confirmation. Uh huh. You're like, all right, you know what? Sorry, Dad, I can't, I can't. I like that. that. Right, right. When I chalk it up, right? They've only they've only won two titles in 70 years. Now the problem for me is that had had they had I been given that choice, I would have picked the teams I still root for. Yeah, it's certainly in 1990 when I turned 18, I'd be crazy not to pick the Bears still. Yeah. And, yeah. And by then, I, I was deluding myself into. Yeah. Well, I just went to the playoffs last year. That's right. 89, 84. Yeah, that's right. We got Greg Holy Maddox. Day. We're never going to let Greg Maddox go. As long yeah. as we have this guy, we're going to be in the playoff hunt. Yeah. All right, I'm depressed. Yeah. Nothing like bringing it around. Um, so <laughs> next week. I believe. Who's the next opponent? Oh no, it's the Vikings, and then a bye week. So we got the Vikings. That oh, good. Be fun. Oh, I got, we got that, to break out all the Jerry Kramer or the uh, Jerry Burns. Um, uh, yeah, get your, your Jerry Burns, some Tommy Kramer DUI stories, maybe. Um, you know, uh, what's the the boat on Lake Minnetonka? Oh, yeah, perhaps if you want, if we, yeah, if we want to go blue, Fred Smoot in the, uh, the sex boat. We just have to make sure we don't run the risk of, uh, if, you know, um, doing too much because we played the Vikings twice. So we'll have, to, right. we have, to, we'll have, we'll have to pace ourselves. Pace ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was easy with the Lions. You know, there's not a whole right. lot. I'm not worried about I'm not worried about Honestly, we can go back to making fun of Wayne Fonts in the second one. Nobody will, there's plenty, nobody will plenty, of dry, plenty of dry powder on that one still, anyway. Yeah. So. All right. Well, then the next week, it's the Vikings. Works for me, man. All right. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Mike. Go Bears. Go Bears. Many of us have herpes. 